The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by Dr. Michael Horton. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. I, for a long time, had trouble with the middle section. Basically, the the main chunk of Luke's gospel that goes all the way from 951 uh, to chapter 19. Uh, In this particular parable of the great banquet, uh, Jesus is uh, reissuing the terms of proper dinner etiquette. And this is not a lone parable. This is very much what Luke's gospel is about in the preceding pericope. We have hospitality rule number one. At a dinner party, don't take the seat of preeminence. (laughs) When someone invites you over, uh, don't take the head uh, seat because then you'll be embarrassed in front of everybody as the host comes over and tells you, I'm sorry, that's not your place. We have someone else sitting there this evening. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will will be exalted. It's, it's dependent on the host's electing grace. Who sits where at the table, in this case, the table of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And my love for the gospel of, of, of Luke is unabated by the fact that I could never understand why in this central section There is no moving around. It's an orderly account, Luke says, as he presents this to Theophilus, but as orderly as it is, it seems to lack the narrative flow of the other Gospels. It's the so-called central section that I mentioned of 951 to 1944 that's so perplexing. We're told in 951, when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Okay, now what do you expect after reading that? Jesus is, is anticipating his ascension and all of the events that will happen in Jerusalem. So he set his face towards Jerusalem. And what you expect to find, like Matthew and Mark, uh, is a travel itinerary. The journey from uh, uh, Samaria to Jerusalem Instead, what we get for 10 chapters is what seems like a timeless, placeless jumble of events that turn on dinner parties. And this can't have happened in Samaria because many of the events recorded there are clearly happening in Bethany or in Jerusalem uh, the raising of Lazarus, Jesus performing miracles under the watchful eye of the, of the temple Pharisees, and so forth. So why doesn't Luke say he went from here to there, and now he's in Jerusalem? There's a sense that he never went anywhere. He just, after he set his face towards Jerusalem, all of these things happened, and we don't know where, we don't know when. The most helpful book I've found on this problem is uh, certainly no conservative, but David Mesner, M-O-E-S-S-N-E-R, if you plan on preaching through Luke, 
Lord of the Banquet, the literary and theological significance of the Lucan travel narrative. From a higher elevation, he argues, Luke Acts offers a travel narrative, but it's not the itinerary that's most important. What's most important is eating and drinking with God, having fellowship with God at the feast that he has appointed. And so the so-called enigma of the central section is resolved when we recognize that it's not a detailed itinerary, but an explanation of the point of Jesus' journey, why he set his face toward Jerusalem. It's a new exodus in which Jesus himself, the master of the house, has arrived, and the guest becomes the host of the feast. Uh, Interspersed among these parables, speeches, and controversies are references to a journey hospitality theme, a Jesus who eats and drinks. In short, Mesner argues, just as the travelogue in Deuteronomy is interrupted by a huge section of laws governing hospitality, governing the, the terms of eating and drinking with God, having fellowship with God, so too here in Luke's gospel, uh, time, as it were, stands still as God uh, gives us the terms of dining with him. <clears throat> to to uh, uh, justify, I think, Mesner's argument, we can see very clearly in Deuteronomy this journeying thing, theme, the idea of a journeying guest uh, journeying toward Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey, uh, fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Moses interceded for the people and God relented, Deuteronomy 9, 17 to 29. And meanwhile, while uh, the, the children of Israel are, are sinning below, Moses remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights interceding for them, and God promised not to destroy the people because of Moses' intercession. And Yahweh said to me, Arise, go on your journey at the head of the people so that they may go in and possess the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. But of course, most of the generation was barred for unbelief. They would not enter the promised land. Like Adam, they had a, you know, wanted a happy meal. Uh, by themselves rather than to eat and drink with God. They didn't see glorifying God and enjoying him forever as the point of the journey. After Abram's victory on the battlefield, of course, uh, there is that, that meal, that hospitality that, that uh, uh, is given to Melchizedek, as uh, given to Abram, as he eats and drinks with a representative of God and is blessed by his suzerain. But in Deuteronomy, uh, instead of enduring the trial, instead of gaining victory, instead of uh, patience to enter the land flowing with milk and honey, that generation died just short of the Jordan River. Moses along with the people. 
And it's significant that God commands the bread of the presence to be placed in the Holy of Holies as a perpetual reminder that God did provide for his people. He did spread a table in the wilderness, but they just had bad table manners. They wouldn't trust in the Lord of the feast. They were not good guests. If they couldn't believe in the one who spreads a table in the desert, they surely couldn't wait for the one who leads them into the land flowing with milk and honey, eating and drinking with the Lord in the Lord's land. The journey narrative seems to stand still as chapters 11 through 30 of Deuteronomy comprise that detailed legislation for how to eat properly in the presence of God, how to enjoy food and drink fellowship with God. And then in chapter 31, the narrative picks up again with a succession from Moses to Joshua and the Song of Moses and so forth. So there really is a parallel to the Gospel of Luke. I think that Mesner's appeal to Deuteronomy makes sense because now the angel of the Lord uh, who who uh, was entertained by Abram is an unwelcome guest in Abraham's house. Already in chapter 1, the people delivered in the Exodus are, like Adam, found questioning God's promise instead of entering God's rest. Uh, Of course, the promise of eating and drinking with God has a much larger, wider canonical reference. You think of Zephaniah 1.7, Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. Or, even more famously, Isaiah 25, a feast on Mount Zion, when the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the death covering that is cast over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Jesus' ministry, of course, begins with his fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Instead of demanding the food that he craved, Jesus replied to the serpent with the words of Moses in Deuteronomy. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so Jesus is the prophet like Moses. But Luke's gospel especially emphasizes hospitality. And, you know, when you go back thinking about this, uh, uh, go back to the central section thinking about this this theme, uh, it begins to make perfect sense that you have so many dinners, so many meals happening, so many engagements uh, around, uh, around eating and drinking, because that is the point of the journey. Uh, Jesus is rejected by his own. They do not show him hospitality. Uh, It's fascinating that the beginning of the central section and the end both relate that Jesus was rejected by his own. So this is, I think, a very important point for Luke as he's arranging his gospel. His basic point is to frame everything in terms of being rejected, the the journeying guest rejected. Indeed, the host of the feast rejected 
by his own guests. In the lengthy central section, then, there are more numerous lengthy and vivid descriptions of meals with sinners, with Pharisees, and with his disciples than we find in the other Gospels. Even though he's denied hospitality, he extends hospitality even to sinners, even to outcasts. He's spreading a feast for all who will come. But on the day of judgment, many of those who reclined with Jesus at those meals are going to be excluded from the table. They're going to come and look for their name tag at the table and, and find strange names there and no place for themselves. They'll be shocked by the verdict as we read, after the master of the house gets up and shuts the door, you will stand outside knocking and saying, Lord, open the door for us. But he will reply, I don't know where you're from. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you. And you taught in our streets. And he will answer, I tell you, I do not know where you're from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. And so it's the insiders who, refusing the invitation, are cast out into outer darkness. And the outsiders who are brought in and who take those seats, those empty seats, at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Pharisees are now interlopers with bad table manners to boot. They don't know how to mourn or dance. They don't know how to, how to, how to come to a, a funeral, uh, and they don't know how to come to a party. They, just, they, they don't know the law or the gospel. They can't mourn or dance. John came neither eating nor drinking, and the religious leaders considered him a nutcase. Think of Deuteronomy 29.6 here. You did not eat bread in the wilderness. You did not eat bread and you did not drink wine or strong drink. In the wilderness, it was, it was, it was uh, not a time for dancing. It was, it, it was not a time for arrival. It was not the land flowing with milk and honey. And so too with John's ministry, it's not that time. But you didn't know how to mourn. But now the wedding groom has arrived. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. It's the wilderness generation all over again. They don't know how to receive the master of the feast. Rejected by his own, He nevertheless sends messengers into the highways and byways to gather guests for his banquet. And so Jesus moves toward Jerusalem. And as he does so, he teaches his disciples to invite to the banquet those who cannot repay him. Our passage here. What a remarkable thing to say. You know, we'll, we'll put out lavish expense to impress the boss or to invite over friends we would like to impress, you know. But Jesus says, no, when you have a party, when you throw a party, invite the people who cannot repay you. Isn't that exactly what he's doing for us? For who has given a gift to him 
that he should repay him. For from him and to him and through him are all things. But do we imitate that hospitality? Even though we have been so so lavishly shown this hospitality, do we step into this new economy of gift exchange? This new economy of gratitude, thanksgiving at the table of the Lord. Well, it's interesting that at the beginning, uh, or actually the end of that narrative section, before it goes into this central section, uh, we are told when the day drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him, But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. Not very hospitable. Oh, they didn't show us hospitality. How about a little fire coming down out of heaven? That ought to show them. That news will get around. Don't mess with Jesus and his posse. The disciples are acting like the Pharisees, bad table manners. After this announcement of the journey, what we get are the seemingly timeless and placeless events of the central section. But they're not timeless. They're not placeless. The point isn't the itinerary. The point is eating and drinking with God in his appointed place and in his appointed way. God's hospitality toward us in Christ, Israel's inhospitality towards the master of the house and his son, and Christ's odd rules of hospitality in his kingdom. We know what it's like to extend generous hospitality to our friends, to employers, family. But what about the strangers? What about the strange who show up at church beside us, maybe? Those with whom we have absolutely nothing in common. I mean, there's a whole principle that you're probably aware of, the homogeneous principle of church growth developed by the Fuller Institute of Church Growth, really central to the church growth movement back in the 80s and 90s, that if, if you really want your church to grow, it needs to be a church made up of people who are homogeneous because people like to go to church with people who are like them. Which, of course, is true because we're all narcissists. But that's something that the gospel hopefully is there to to uh, overcome in our hearts. Those whom many in society deem others unfit for our table. Not the beautiful people we'd like to impress with a dinner party. Yeah, those are the people you invite, Jesus says. Those people, the unlovely people, the people you're not attracted to, the people you're not interested in, the people who can do nothing for you, The people maybe who come from certain blank countries. What can they contribute? Those people. Because the first will be last. And the last will be first. And what are we to do when we're treated inhospitably? Call fire down? No, go to another village. Preach the gospel there. So that's really the point, I believe, of the enigmatic central section of Luke's gospel. Like Deuteronomy, the travel narrative is interrupted by a series of events and laws 
that tell us what it's like, new rules for hospitality at God's table. And this preaching of the kingdom uh, turns from Jesus to the disciples as they now are sent by Jesus into the highways and byways, all of the back alleys to find guests for this feast. What a strange dinner. What a strange feast. Let me conclude with this thought and then we'll sing. Each Lord's Day we come to church with our own problems, our own heavy hearts, wondering can God spread a table in the wilderness? He gave us bread, but can he give us meat? What about this dinner with God? What about this land flowing with milk and honey? What about this well-aged wine? And then, as in Luke 24, the stranger shows up alongside of us, explains himself from all the scriptures, and then is taken home and treated to hospitality by the disciples, but suddenly takes over, reverses the rules of hospitality, and the guest becomes the host, the master. He takes over and institutes, uh, institutes but celebrates the first Holy Communion after the resurrection. The penny drops, and they say, now we know who you are. They run to the upper room, tell the other apostles, and Jesus shows up in the room. Peace be unto you. No longer obsessed with the problems that we brought with us to church, looking for people like us. We're gathered as this strange Eucharistic community in thanksgiving and joy with good news to share to a needy world that still lies under that cover of death and fear. Let me close with a great quote from Frederick Buchner. sums this up nicely. There is little that we can point to in our lives as deserving anything but God's wrath. Our best moments have been mostly grotesque parodies. Our best loves have been almost always blurred with selfishness and deceit. But there is something to which we can point. Not anything that we ever did or were, but something that was done for us by another. Not our own lives, but the life of one who died in our behalf and yet is still alive. This is our only glory and our only hope. And the sound that it makes is the sound of excitement and gladness and laughter that floats through the night air from a great banquet. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.